Today's reading is from Titus chapter 2, that is page 1199 in the Church Bible. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thank you. Great. Do keep that bit of the Bible open in front of you. That's what we're going to be looking at just now. So uh, let me pray for us as we begin looking at that. Loving Father God, we do thank you so much for the Bible. We pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to accept it, believe it. Please would you help us to put it into practice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Christmas advert season, isn't it? Uh, It's been going for a little while now. I don't know if you've seen Asda. They've got Buddy the Elf working on the checkouts. You've got John Lewis going big on adoption and fostering and things like that, which is great. And and most of the adverts this year are recognising that people are struggling a bit. There's a bit less about having a lavish feast and a bit more about giving back. Kindness, generosity, those things can be a good advert. And that's what we see in our Bible reading this morning, a lifestyle of goodness that is a good advert, a good advert for the gospel. And we're going to tackle this passage a bit back to front. We're going to start with the end of it, verse 11 to 15, which lay the foundations. Why ought we to be godly and good? And then we'll go back to the start and do verse 1 to 10 to see what that godliness actually looks like. Does that make sense? We're going to start with the end, which explains it, and then go and see what it looks like in practice. 
So the first thing about why to be good is because grace leads us to godliness. You may have heard me say that already last week. You'll hear it again this week. You'll hear it again next week. Grace leads us to godliness. That is the main point of this whole letter. And we see it really clearly, don't we, in verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Grace is the love and kindness God shows us that we don't deserve. What we do deserve is justice, punishment, for all of the ways that we do wrong, all the ways that we hurt other people, all the ways that we reject God. That's what we deserve. Left to ourselves, we're heading for hell. But verse 11 tells us the grace of God appeared. Like when you're watching a film, the train is about to fall off the tracks, about to go into the water, and then suddenly Spider-Man appears suddenly comes in swinging into the rescue or uh, a defender kind of appearing out of nowhere to clear the ball off the line, that sort of thing. That idea of real problem, real hopeless danger and suddenly something appears to sort it out. Well, that is what God's grace does when everything looks hopeless. It's like the sunrise coming up in the morning. When Jesus appeared, God's grace appeared. When God himself came to save us, came to die on the cross instead of us. Verse 13 and 14 describe him as our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. We don't deserve that, but he, he gave himself anyway for us. That's how the grace of God offers salvation to us. Salvation to all people, anybody who puts their faith in Jesus can be saved. That is God's wonderful, astonishing grace that it appears and saves us. And that's not all. It doesn't just wipe out our past. God's grace gives us an amazing, glorious future. Have a look in verse 13 at what we're waiting for. We wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Jesus appeared already once to die for us, to show us grace, and he's going to appear again, this time in glory, so we get to live with him forever. I cannot wait for that, and yet that is what we are waiting for. And all of that, dealing with our past, dealing with our future, all of that is a gift of God's incredible grace. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, have you picked up on that? That salvation is offered to you entirely by grace. Not because of things you've done, not because of things we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And it has an amazing impact on us. If that's happened to us, if we are a Christian who, for whom grace has appeared and saved us and given us this great future, do we just carry on as we were before? No, grace leads us to godliness. See verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and all that other stuff. And to say yes to upright and godly lives. 
God's grace is like a personal trainer, setting us in shape, getting us sorted out, training us, teaching us, showing us the way to go, helping us to put it into practice. Like a tutor coaching us for life. Here is where you're going wrong. Here's how to get it right. Training us, teaching us so that we say no to the things that we ought to say no to. So we draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do that anymore because God's grace has changed me. I belong to him now. He calls the shots. See, in verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Everyone's eager for something. I don't know what you're eager about, whether you're very eager about the World Cup at the minute. That's what gets your blood pumping. If you're eager about something else, some other hobby, some other thing that you're really into. Well, Jesus says he wants us to be eager to do good. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Turning our backs on our old way of life and actively running towards godliness. Let's not make being good, something we're sort of occasionally interested in. I might maybe get on a rotor once or twice to squeeze a couple of good things in. No, we want to be eager to do good all throughout our lives. Grace trains us for that. It gives us the motivation because God is already pleased with us. He's been so kind to us. Of course we want to live for him. Grace gives us the power We are now his people with his Holy Spirit helping us to obey. And when we get it wrong, which we will, grace dusts us off, gets us going again. God saves us by his grace and trains us by his grace. His grace leads us to godliness. And that kind of godliness doesn't go unnoticed. It serves as an advert for the gospel. We think grace leads us to godliness and godliness leads others to grace. And it goes round and round like that. Other people see the way that we live and it draws attention to Jesus. Now this comes up a number of times. Verse 10, why is it that slaves should behave a certain way? It's so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. There's a way of living that makes the gospel look good, draws attention to how good it is. When you put an amazing painting in just the right frame to show off its beauty, or like an advert which shows that the product actually works, The claims of Christianity to forgive people, to transform people, it's not just empty promises because, I mean, look at us. Our lives are proof that it's true, that it actually does change us. And it works the other way as well. If we are ungodly, that's a really bad advert, isn't it? It seems to suggest that it doesn't work. That's one reason why younger women should behave a certain way in verse 5. It's so that no one will malign the word of God. So that no one will see them behaving a certain way and go, ha, see? It doesn't look like it does anything to a person, does it? It doesn't look like it works. 
People are often looking for reasons to discredit the gospel, aren't they? Let's not give them any. Let's not give them a reason. Well, Titus is told in verse 8, he should behave a certain way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The reputation of us is at stake. Other Christians, the reputation of the gospel itself. People are judging us and in so doing they are judging the gospel. Let's be good adverts. Let's be good adverts for the gospel. Some people will still oppose us. They would still oppose Titus. These are people who oppose Titus, whether they had a reason to or not. And he's saying, when they oppose you, which they will, make sure they don't have any ammo. (laughs) They've got nothing to, to get at you for. Other people will see the impact Jesus is having in our lives and want to find out more. Now, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're not a Christian yet, but something about believers intrigues you. Well, that is really, really excellent. Look beyond them to the God of grace who offers to save you and to change you as well. Grace leads us to godliness. Godliness leads others to grace. But what does godliness look like? What does it actually look like? What it looks like needs to be defined. I mean, if I said someone is going to pick you up and take you home after church, you would want to know who. What do they look like? Stranger danger. You know, I don't want to get in the wrong car. And it's the same thing with Titus. You can't just say, go be good. Well, what does good look like? In Crete, back then... In when, today, good and bad are all jumbled up. People celebrate what is wrong and they criticise what is right. So we need to have it spelled out, don't we? What does godliness actually look like? We need to play that note loud and clear so that we can all get our instruments back in tune to that. So we can recalibrate our consciences, if you like. In our lives, we need right and wrong to be defined by God, not by ourselves or not by the world. So some of what it looks like may be unpopular, but we don't get to pick and choose. Can you see in verse 15, Titus is encouraged to hold the line. He's told, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. There are things about what this looks like that might make people despise you if you say that sort of thing. In a world of liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons, if you remember from last week, godliness is going to rub some people up the wrong way, even some Christians. But in contrast to false teachers, we need to tell the truth. See verse 1, you however must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That's not saying teach sound doctrine, although we absolutely should. It's saying teach the stuff that fits with sound doctrine. Teach the godliness that grace leads to. And so what comes next is what that gospel godliness actually looks like. And it looks different for different groups. Now, we're each going to fit into at least one of these categories. 
So this is going to challenge all of us in some way. Paul focuses, I think, on each of those areas, each age and stage and gender and situation, and he's focusing on those particular areas of temptation for each group. So we're going to look at each of those one by one and see what godliness might look like for us. Firstly, older men. See verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and in endurance. Now, our society doesn't respect age as it should. But this is saying as well, older men need to be worthy of respect. As men get older, there should be a growing dignity, a maturity. Older men have had plenty of time to get their lives under control. And so, as you get older, that needs to be happening. Now, as you get older as well, I I know we get more concerned with our health, don't we? Everybody's trying to flog you insurance or pills or some gizmo that's going to keep you fit. This is saying it's more important to be spiritually healthy. That's what sound means. It talks about being sound. It means being healthy. Older men need a healthy heart. Or in other words, sound in love. Don't let your love for Jesus go cold over time. Or your love for church or the lost or your wife for that matter. Be sound in love. Be sound in faith. That's about a sort of healthy mind that knows the truth, loves the Bible. Don't get older without also getting wiser. Older men need to be sound in endurance. That means keep going right to the end. It's one thing to start, isn't it? Make sure you finish. Make it your aim to burst through the finish tape rather than giving up before the race is done. It is so easy to get tired. It is so easy to get tired physically, generally, but to get tired of doing good. And this is saying, no, be healthy, be sound in endurance. Keep going. Don't retire from godliness. It's a lifelong pursuit. To be called older, it's not an insult. It ought to be a compliment. Younger men should aim at being older men. Now, I know in one level you can't help it. You're a bit older already. Um, But it's saying aim to be this sort of older man. If you are an older man here today, I'll let you decide if you fit that description or not. How are you doing at this about being temperate, being self-controlled? Can I urge you to be those fathers of the faith that you are, to set the benchmark, be the role model that people look to. So younger men look at you and say, I hope I'm like that when I get older. And praise God we do have older men like that here at church. Older women. Now, I probably should have said this already. Older is subjective, isn't it? (laughs) A one-year-old is older than a newborn baby. So are they older? Now, age can be a touchy subject. When this was written, you could be called older from about 30 onwards. Sorry. (laughs) But again, as with the men, older is not an insult. 
It's something to aim for. The Bible says grey hair is a crown of glory. So what does godliness look like here? Well, verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Reverent isn't a word you hear very much. It's not a word you use normally. It's about being appropriate. So, for example, if you're in the cinema, it isn't reverent to talk loudly on your phone. That is not the time or the place. That's the idea here, saying make your behavior fitting, appropriate for the situations you're in. Fitting, appropriate for someone who claims to follow Jesus. One of the things Paul thinks may be a temptation for older women is gossiping and slandering. How easy it is to gripe and moan and criticize rather than choose to speak well of people or refuse to join in with that kind of talk. Another area for older women here is alcohol. It says don't be addicted to much wine. Literally, don't be a slave. Now, how much do women get sold stuff about how it is always wine o'clock? You see those funny little signs, that, signs and fridge magnets that are everywhere? Coffee keeps me going until it's acceptable to drink gin, those sorts of signs. That is the logic of an alcoholic, isn't it? Wine, 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 gin, gin, gin. It might be that there's a problem. It might be that there's something you need to talk to somebody about. And this is just saying that older women, watch out for that. Just watch out for that temptation. We can so often think, oh, that's a temptation for younger people. Whereas it seems to be a temptation for older people as well. Older women need to watch out. Not least because they've got a job to do that they need to be alert for. See, in the end of verse 3, You need to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to do the things that the younger women need to do. Older women are being given a special assignment here. I don't know if you notice how Titus is told to address each of these groups directly, except the younger women. He's told, tell the older women to train them. There is nobody, not even Titus, who is better placed to teach the younger women than the older women. Have you grasped this? That you've got this unique role that is not open to men to disciple other women, to teach what is good. Teach them the gospel. Teach them the godliness that goes with it. But what will that look like for younger women? Verse 4 and 5. Urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now these are controversial verses, aren't they? But we need to remember that God defines godliness not the culture around us. Passages like this are like the lid on the jigsaw box. So that in a confusing world, we know where we're supposed to put all the pieces. This isn't everything the Bible says to women either. 
It's more like a troubleshooting page, if you like. These are the areas where it often goes wrong. These are the areas which each group needs to get clarity on if they're going to avoid common mistakes. And it's saying that the focus for younger women and where the focus will tend to be tempted to drift away from should be husbands and their children. Not everybody has those. Statistically, most will. And therefore, this becomes an issue for most. And so that's why that's focused on here. They need encouragement. They need encouragement to see that the heart of that role is love. It says, urge them to love their husbands. Urge them to love their kids. Whatever else this may be saying, it's not about duty so much as love. So when it says to be subject to their husbands, that's not about being squashed under their boot. It's acknowledging God's good design for marriage. That men and women are absolutely equal. And that equal doesn't mean identical. Men and women are wonderfully different. And in marriage, those differences complement each other brilliantly, beautifully, when wives follow their husbands' leads. And it's the same when it talks about to be busy at home. It's saying there should be a homeward focus, not chaining women to the kitchen sink. But it is saying that husband, children, home, those things should be high priority. Those things should get the best of a younger woman's time and energy. Now, there might be exceptional circumstances. There might be times when a husband can't work, husband isn't around, some other exceptional circumstance. But the ideal is being put here of an orientation towards home and family. Now, if a, a younger woman is able to do all of that, able to love her husband and kids well, be busy at home, and still has time and energy left over, I don't think this is forbidding getting a job outside the home. I don't think it's saying that. But that job shouldn't be an escape from what God has called you to. It needs to genuinely benefit family life. Which is why the rubber normally hits the road with this when children come along. Not because that's the point when home starts being a focus, but because that's when it's really, really hard. That's when there's a real need, and that's when time and energy is pretty low. Now, this is not easy. This is not easy. Older women, they need your help and experience because the temptation to pull away from all of this is huge. Our sinful nature always wants to push against whatever roles God's given us. So men, we get lazy and we don't lead like we should. Or we become bullies in our leadership. Sometimes it's men stepping down from their responsibilities that makes women feel they need to step up into those. And we're living in a culture that is telling women to do anything but what this is saying. They need your help and encouragement. Dorothy Patterson puts it like this. Much of the world would agree that being a housekeeper is acceptable as long as you're not caring for your own home. Treating men with attentive devotion would also be right, as long as the man is the boss in the office, not your husband. Caring for children would even be deemed heroic service, for which presidential awards might be given, 
as long as the children are somebody else's and not your own. That's what the world is telling us. But God's word says, no, being a wife, being a mother, that is a high calling. It is not a waste of your potential. Older women, with your words, with your example, are you encouraging younger women towards this sort of godliness? Being self-controlled, having the purity to give yourself for other people. It doesn't just say staying at home, being a lady what lunches, that kind of thing. It's saying being busy at home, actually doing good. And doing it with kindness, doing it with love rather than resentment and frustration. This is really, really important. It's really important, not least because at the end of verse 5, it's so that no one will malign the word of God. It's about being a good advert for Jesus. Admittedly, some people will malign God's word because of teaching like this. But they're often criticizing it because they haven't actually seen it up close. And because it sounds really hard and they don't want to do it. It is really hard. But it's absolutely worth it. If you are an older woman, find somebody younger to urge on. If you are a younger woman, find somebody older to urge you on, making sure they're going to urge you the right way. And if you don't know whether you're a younger woman or an older woman, why not do both? There's loads more we can say about this. Maybe there's conversations to have afterwards. But for now, let's, let's move on to the next group about younger men. This is a lot simpler. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. That's it. Self-control. Younger men, can you think of an area in your life that wouldn't be better if you had more self-control? Can we look at the state of the nation and tell me that younger men don't need self-control? Young men have so much potential, but without self-control... That is dangerous. There's a toddler driving a truck. We need self-control, which despite the name, it's not about putting ourselves in control. It's putting ourselves under God's control. The Lord is the one teaching us to say no to ungodliness. And we need to deliberately let him do that across the board, whatever the different situations are in our lives. What do we need, younger men? Self-control. What do we need at work? So what do we need in this? What do we need in that? Self-control. Let's encourage each other in that. Now thinking of younger men makes Paul think of one young man in particular, and that's Titus. Verse 7 to 8. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. So not everything Titus is told to do applies to all younger men. They don't all have the same role as him. But in general, as we saw last week, church leaders, like Titus, should be model Christians. Not perfect, but not hypocrites. And for Titus, his teaching is singled out in particular. It says, in your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us. What Titus said should be 
healthy, life-giving, not the junk food of false teaching. He should teach with integrity so that his opponents have got no ammo to attack him with or attack other Christians with. A good advert for the gospel. Titus needs to tell the truth in a way that shows how important it is. And later on it talks about encouraging and rebuking with all authority. So when there are people getting it right, encouraging, saying, yeah, that's exactly it. Where people are getting it wrong, saying, right, okay, we need to sort this out. There is always the temptation to pull the punch. In a chapter like this, to make it less offensive. But the job of somebody like Titus is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You can't be a good advert for the gospel just by godly living. When the time comes, especially for someone like Titus, the gospel must actually be said. And it's got to be said truthfully and accurately. Which is why, in a sense, this whole chapter, really, we've got all these different groups, really it's all aimed at Titus with that headline, teach these things. That's where the big thing is. Churches, church leaders, teach this stuff to every group, including slaves. Now, this is about being godly at work. In Paul's day, many, many, many people were slaves. It was not a good system. But it could be more like modern employment than like, for example, the the horrors of the African slave trade, for example. It could be far more like that. The best parallel to this for us today would be our jobs. And grace completely transforms those work relationships as well. In verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. So anything they've got the right to ask you to do, do that and do it well. He goes on, try, not, um, sorry, try to please them, not to talk back to them or to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. We ought to work in such a way as to make sure we get a good reference. Because it's not just a reference for us, is it? It's a reference for the gospel. Who wouldn't want an employee or a colleague or a boss who was like that? I think we can get the idea, can't we, that grace, God's grace, is supposed to train us to be good in a Bible study setting and well-behaved on Sundays. But this is saying, no, the gospel transforms us for the whole week. It transforms us for Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and every other hour as well. Think about your workplace if you have one. Wouldn't it shine out to have a respectful attitude backed up by an honest performance? That would speak loudly, wouldn't it? Because that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to speak loudly. Then verse 10 We're supposed to do this so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. In our workplaces, we can be good adverts for the gospel, drawing attention to how good it is. Now, this is what godliness looks like. It's not everything about it, but it's picking on particular areas of need, of concern at home and work, men, women, young and old. The gist being that grace 
transforms us, doesn't it? Like a personal trainer giving each one of us specific goals, exercises based on our situation to help us get into spiritual shape. Grace leads us to godliness, which leads others to grace. As we finish, I wonder what one thing has struck you about what godliness looks like in your situation. Maybe it's an encouragement. Perhaps it was a challenge. Well, let's talk about those things. Let's urge one another on as we stay on for coffee. Let's not just urge each other to try a bit harder, but to rely on God's grace. Isn't it a wonderful thing that grace has appeared, offering salvation, forgiveness for all our failures, the hope of genuine change? Why don't we pray for that? Heavenly Father, we are very aware of the many ways that we sin. And that makes us all the more grateful that you are a loving and a gracious God. We thank you so much for your grace in Jesus to save us. We thank you too for your grace which teaches us, trains us. Please help us to urge one another on in that. Help us to live lives which are good adverts for the gospel. Pointing other people to our great God and Saviour Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.